This is Voices of Research. I am Mikael Kristadius, and you are listening to Radio Moreni. So, we are back in Voices of Research, and today our guest is Paul Berger. Welcome. Thank you. So, where are you from, and how long have you been in Finland? If you ask me where I'm from, I would say Boston, Massachusetts is predominantly where I grew up. But I live in Columbus, Ohio, where I uh, was my primary job at Ohio State University. There's a faculty member here in Tampere who is an expat American who I met in Germany back in 1999 on my very first sabbatical leave. And he came here about a decade ago to be a faculty. And when he changed his profile on LinkedIn, I noticed it and sent him a message. And uh, we immediately connected and we Skyped together and, and communicated our current interests and updated each other, which precipitated into us writing a proposal together. And I to the National Science Foundation and he to the Academy of Finland, it was awarded and that launched a four-year collaboration and some student exchanges back and forth. Then, as that was winding down, Don Lupo asked me if I uh, wanted to go a little deeper, and there was this Finnish Distinguished Professorship program. The only thing was that the caveat was it required a nearly 50% participation of living in Finland during the period of a five-year program, and that was kind of daunting, but a third sabbatical leave was going to fall within that five-year set. And so I thought it was palatable. So we applied, we got accepted. And so that really instituted my living here, really living here. I had an apartment and I came and went as needed. And so I basically ended living here almost half of the five years. I fell shy of that target by one month because I did a humanitarian engineering project down in Tanzania, putting up solar panels for an orphanage with my Ohio State students. But uh, And then as that was winding down, I globbed on to the Fulbright Nokia Distinguished Chair Award and uh, applied to that and was lucky enough to receive that. Apparently that's very prestigious. Finland was actually one of the architects, one of the early members of the Fulbright program They even predate the Fulbright program in USA, and they're one of the crown jewels, if you will, within the Fulbright program. And the Fulbright Nokia Distinguished Chair is maybe one of the shiniest jewels of this uh, whole program. So I'm really lucky and fortunate to have that and be supported by that. So that is uh, expecting me to be here for two flex visits. So I'm in the final stages of my first four-month flex visit, and I'll be returning here in August for another four months. But meanwhile, I've been elevated to being a docent here at Tampere University, which means I'm going to have a semi-permanent, although homeless, position here in Tampere for indefinitely. So you, well, the opportunity to come to Finland just was given to you. So you didn't really get to choose the city or university in Finland. But how have you liked it here in Tampere? Would you rather have gone to Helsinki, for example? 
No, I very much like Thampara. It's really grown on me, and I was really sad when I sort of became homeless at the <laughs> end of my Finnish Distinguished Professorship, my FIDI Pro. So I had to take five years worth of my life and put that in a storage locker with the hopes that I would kind of return. And to be quite honest, I sort of still toy with the idea of if I could purchase a place myself as these uh, programs end where they're providing housing for me and retire here or partially retire here and so forth. I really enjoy Pampas, a good size city, plenty to do, plenty of outdoors. I'm infatuated with the Kaupahola and the fishmonger. They all know me. I go there and I just picked up another uh, special order of scallops uh, just yesterday. And the salmon is so delightful. And the pike perch, we don't have pike perch in the USA. I guess there's some something similar to it, but uh, just delicious eating. And now it's uh, asparagus season. Well, I'm just in heaven here. It's just clean water, clean air, delicious food. Uh, it's it's wonderful. But having grown up in Boston, I really am infatuated with seafood. And in USA, I'm currently living in Ohio, which is you know the Midwest, one of these the so-called flyover states. And so we're quite far from the ocean. So it's either flown in by expedited uh, packaging or it's frozen. So. Uh, so, you know, I don't get quite the exposure to the seafood as I can here. So I kind of go crazy. And then and then, don't even get me started on the blueberries. <laughs> I've, been, I've, been, I've been a blueberry lover since I was a kid. My favorite story as a child was uh, a story by Robert McCloskey called Blueberries for Sal. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's, it's a girl is picking wild blueberries with her mom in, in Maine and a mom bear is with her bear cub and they're eating berries on a mountain and they get lost and the bear cub and the and the little girl get uh, swapped and all of a sudden the mom bear is with the little girl and the and the mom is with this bear cub and there's kind of oh they kind of scream and they run and uh, and <laughs> it's, it's fun but then at the end they have all these blueberries in their kitchen and they make blueberry pie Blueberries are a rather famous Finnish um, delicacy. Delicacy, that's mm-hmm. the word. Well, then, what's about your career as a researcher? How did you choose this profession? Was it always planned, or was it just a chance that led to this profession? The specific profession was a little bit of kind of evolved. But I always knew I wanted to be an engineer scientist. I'm I'm the youngest of four. My father was an engineer. My mother should have been an engineer. She basically was the equivalent of one. So I always had an engineering mindset. So going through junior high and high school, I really had the mentality, I'm going to be an engineer. It's just which flavor of engineer. And as I evolved, I really enjoyed the physics. And so I ended up in majoring in engineering physics, which is a less common engineering topic. It's really laden with a lot of physics. It's probably not the best degree to take if you're going to stop at a bachelor's because it's somewhat nebulous. But as a foundation for the work I do now, it really is a very good foundation because you get as much physics as a physics major, but you also get exposure to the applications, you know, the engineering side of things. Like in addition to electrical engineering, you're getting exposed to mechanical engineering like fluid mechanics, 
which helps in reactor design in synthesizing some materials. Heat transfer, which is important for these devices as, as you run them hot and they heat up, how do you get the heat out? And so, so I kind of evolved into engineering physics and I wanted to, I actually was at one time going to try to solve the world's energy problems and work on fusion. And I actually performed research as an undergraduate for two summers on laser fusion. And it was really interesting. The laser was so powerful when it shot its laser, uh, like a picosecond pulse. In that pulse, the pulse energy was equivalent to the entire US energy grid. But I started to fall out of favor with it because I started to feel like it was not going to be accomplished in my lifetime. And so I started to back away from it. And at the time, there was a huge amount of effort in building out light wave communications. And back then, optical fibers were actually kind of like dumb wires. Now they have some built-in intelligence. So the really interesting part was what was at either end of the optical fiber, the transmitter, the laser diode, or the receiver. And so I started to gravitate towards working on the fundamentals of that, whether it be the materials growth, synthesis, the devices. So then I worked on a numerous number of those devices that go into those systems. Well, about the topic at hand then, your research. As far as I know, you are currently working on several different topics such as the Internet of Things, bioelectronics, applied physics and so on. It's probably rather difficult to try to summarize your work in just a few minutes, but what would you say your research is about? So a lot of my work is really a little bit different than some of my colleagues back in the USA, which is their work is a little bit more targeted towards uh, supporting the Department of Defense. There's a lot of research dollars poured into those type of topics of improving, you know, weapons systems and things like that. My work, I tend to gravitate towards consumer electronics. I'm looking for ways that we can really help everybody, something that could go into the marketplace. And even now, I'm now starting to get very entrepreneurial minded and launch some of my own startup companies. So something that is, you know, really going to end up into our cell phone or on our person in some way, I think that's much more rewarding to me. So there's a number of topics. Maybe the one I will select uh, is the one that maps on to here. So when I met my friend Don Lupo in Germany in uh, my first sabbatical way back in 1999, and he came here, one of the things he was working on when he came here was electronics on paper. So UPM is one of the largest paper companies in the world, and Don had been consulting with UPM to find ways to put electronics onto paper. And I think UPM was a visionary in that they saw that people were going to be using less paper and moving towards these electronic gadgets that we have now. And so, uh, pardon me for the pun, but I think they saw the writing on the wall that people were going to use less paper. So they were trying to do this fusion of electronics and paper. And so Don had been consulting with UPM for a period of time, and somehow that eventually created an opening for a faculty position here, which led to him applying and getting the job. And as I explained earlier, that carried me along at the same time. 
And so there's really three of us. We're kind of the three musketeers. There's Mati Monticello, a native Finn. There's Don Lupo and myself. And our vision is to create these Internet of Things or medical wearables that are very small footprint, very easy to use. I see in the USA the interpretation by most people of Internet of Things. And I actually see a new commercial that just came on the American TV, uh, which I sometimes watch and stream from here, that they have this app, then someone has their clothes washing machine on the Internet. So they show in this commercial a family watching a movie together, and the mother's phone app pings saying that, the clothes washer is finished and she needs to you know move the clothes over to the drying machine that is one interpretation but we see it being more ubiquitous we see it being miniaturized printable basically at some point no more silicon ic chips because those are very expensive and there's there's a limitation to how many semiconductor chips can be made synthesized in the world in fact even now in the pandemic there's a bit of a shortage of chips and i know if detroit is having a hard time making automobiles right now because there's a shortage of chips no our vision is to not do silicon our vision is to make something equivalent to a tom of finland postage stamp that you can affix to anything so i'm a really big coffee addict so maybe i fit in with finland fairly well there but i'm also addicted to coffee creamer with my coffee so i envision sort of a postage stamp something like a tama finland postage stamp that could go on the bottom of the coffee creamer and built into that could be an rfid so the soko supermarket knows that it's coffee creamer and you can easily scan it bypassing the need for the upc symbol but also what if it had a little capacitor in there so depending upon the weight of the coffee creamer it would be able to register as full half full quarter full and so then it would be able to talk to my cell phone or whatever intelligent brain i have in my smart kitchen and it could automatically do real-time inventory so i'm at the grocery store and i'm trying to think do i need to buy another coffee creamer well yeah okay so i can get real-time inventory and then even at home it could facilitate less food wastage because then it could remind me hey i have this pork chops in the back of the refrigerator and maybe i should eat them today because they're getting near their expiration date and by the way to go with that pork chops you have these ingredients in your kitchen right now and they parse onto these recipes that you've enjoyed in the past you know and so it could facilitate easier living you know less stress and less food wastage and just a, a better living so that's one incarnation of it there's medical wearables where you can have something equivalent to an electronic tattoo i know Finns love tattoos and so why not have just a simple electronic tattoo you know, this would be a much lower footprint than an apple watch or something like that this macroscopic thing you could just have it rub it on almost like uh, in the usa we have something called cracker jacks it's kind of a decadent uh popcorn laced with sugar that kids like uh, and in the cracker jacks box are these rub-on tattoos that you get as a kid and so it's something like that where this device could have functionality it could uh, measure blood pressure uh, skin temperature things like that but now 
what I'm alluding to is now there's an explosion of Internet of Things way beyond our washing machines and our dishwashers. Now they're everywhere. Now they're on a cereal box. Now they're on a coffee creamer container and or a blueberry jam jar. And so now they're everywhere. So you cannot go and like your cell phone, plug it in while you go to sleep so that in the morning your cell phone is charged for the day which if you're lucky, you can get through the whole day without recharge. You could not possibly plug in every little object in your kitchen overnight. So we have to bake into that the ability to, to scavenge energy from the environment. And so that can be many modalities. That could be being able to pull in your house Wi-Fi or your corporate Wi-Fi or the supermarket Wi-Fi and converting that through a rectifier into energy. Or it could be the room lights. It doesn't have to be sunlight. It could be room light. There are some organic solar cells that are actually better matched to indoor room light. It could be heat. It could be, you know, the difference between the body temperature and the air temperature could actually drive a small voltage. It could be motion. You probably have seen sneakers that have LEDs for children and they light up. Well, that's basically scavenging energy from the motion of the little kid running across the playground. So there is ways to harness energy to scavenge energy, if you will, from the environment. And then we need to package that into a, a non-toxic energy storage. So the other thing is, if you're gonna make trillions and trillions of these objects, you don't want to, just like batteries, throw them in the landfill and, and toxify your groundwater. So we're trying to put that into a non-toxic uh, package. And that's one of the things Don Lupo's group does is a non-toxic supercapacitor. So supercapacitors can charge much more, uh, much faster and uh, many more times recharges than a battery. And if made in the way with a sensitivity to nature, that Don does, then it's non-toxic. It maybe compromises the energy density a little bit. To get really high energy densities, you're usually having to add some sort of a toxic material, a heavy metal or something like that. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to have a sort of a green solution for Internet of Things and medical wearables. What would you say has been the most intriguing project you have worked on? The most intriguing, perhaps, was in a, another half of my uh, research group is in the realm of quantum tunneling devices. There was a project hosted by DARPA. DARPA, you may have heard of, is the kind of the crown jewel in the Department of Defense funding agencies. DARPA is known for doing the impossible, asking researchers to do the impossible. And one of the aspects that they were trying to deliver in the late 90s was quantum devices in a silicon platform. So we see the silicon that's ubiquitous now in our cell phones and so forth. But they were anticipating the Moore's Law shrinking of silicon transistors, and they wanted to add quantum mechanical devices so the project I was on was Quantum Moss, trying to do the fusion. Basically, the specific project I was on was trying to replicate an Asaki tunnel diode, but compatible silicon CMOS fabrication. So the Asaki tunnel diode, for which Leo Asaki won the Nobel Prize, 
is a great device, but you really can't synthesize that in large batches with the density and the uniformity that Intel can do for a microprocessor with millions and millions of transistors. So this project was to try to find a way to deliver the same end result of a tunnel diode, but through an epitaxial process that could be cohabitating on the CMOS chip uniformly. So we were into this project for a few years, and the project was, was struggling, to be quite honest. It was not delivering the goods. I was working on some aspects of material science that was kind of supporting the project. And lead PI at my university was on sabbatical at the time, and he had me fill in for him at one of the annual reviews for that uh, project. And so I went to Colorado, the meeting, and I was told by the lead PI, who was at a corporation, that we were in serious dire jeopardy of having our funding cut. And so, well, that uh, gets your notice. And being in a former epitaxial crystal grower of my PhD days, I really have a fundamental understanding of the crystal growth and how you do that and, and the synthesis of these. And so, you know, trying to grow this epitaxially in a silicon platform and the whole team had been beating their head against a wall. Well, I, instead of looking at these uh, esoteric materials parameters, I started to look at the device itself for the first time with a new fresh look. And I actually went to my hotel room that night and ruminated about well, how would I do this if I were to do it. So it's actually the first time I was really putting my eyes on the true core problem of our project. And I actually sketched out a band diagram of how I would do it and had a running thought of this. And that galvanized into a call to a key epitaxial crystal grower at the Naval Research Lab. And I was able to convince him the, to collaborate. He did grew my device the first time, and it was missing a few elements in the recipe. And so it showed a glimmer of hope. It was somewhat promising, but it wasn't quite there yet. And so then we all put our heads together, the Naval Research Lab and my team, and we really kind of dissected, read some literature, and we modified the recipe in a few key areas. And on the second try, it worked. It worked like a charm. And that led to a paper that probably went through the peer review process the fastest I've ever seen. It was basically accepted as is, which then led to we were mentioned on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with this big Eureka breakthrough. We not only sustained the DARPA project, but we actually got an extension. Our team won the DARPA Excellence Award that year. My student's PhD won the best science and engineering dissertation that year. And that particular project then, uh, after about a decade's worth of additional work to mature that device and really build it out, led to me eventually being honored by the IEEE, my core professional society, the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEEE, uh, and I was elevated to be a fellow of the IEEE for that body of work, so I was very honored to receive that. What kind of a future do you see for your research? Since I'm really looking towards these commercialization aspects, 
is an underlying theme for a lot of this stuff, whether it be the Internet of Things, printable medical wearables, these quantum tunneling devices. I'm always looking at ways that they could go into the marketplace. So I am always looking at my own entrepreneurial activities to be able to push these because a lot of these ideas can just lay dormant unless you push it yourself. It's kind of hard to kind of hope and pray that Intel will come along shopping and want to buy your intellectual property or even know what to do with it. I think it kind of behooves us to, if I want to drive this into the marketplace, I should be the driver. So I've been learning more of the business side of the coin and being able to propel that. So I've launched, uh, I think I'm on my third startup company now, and looking at ways to launch it myself. And maybe that would lead to getting name recognition. Maybe we would get bought out or whatever, or we would continue to press it ourselves. But that to prosecute it in that way, I think, uh, will be able to ensure that some of these technologies that have merit, I mean, some don't, you know, the market forces uh, play a role. And so you may have a great idea, but it's just a wrong place at the wrong time and so forth. So you just have to accept that. But I'm trying to push that out and I would love to see some of my ideas galvanize into the marketplace. And I'd love to be able to go through the Prisma and, uh, someday in the future and say, oh, Paul Berger's uh, widget is in there and uh, that would be very comforting. So, But I'm also doing a lot of humanitarian engineering work on the side as well. And so I see that could be something that could kind of be a soft landing for retirement to be able to do things like that and being able to help the world and bring education to the, you know, to the world. I'm doing, you know, projects in Africa and South America. They have a lot to contribute and I feel that sometimes there's this mentality in the U.S. of this colonialism that we need to help them in these countries, that they're poorer nations and so forth. And, and I don't really believe that. Having traveled quite extensively, I see such level of innovation and so forth. They, they may not have the tools we have, and so we have to look at through their lens, through their eyes, and, but there's some deep you know, just creativity and innovation that's just gobsmacking. And, and so I see opportunities that if they were equal partners in the world playing, we would be all pulling, rowing the boat together. I think we could really start to really do some amazing things of being able to move our uh, world to a healthier situation, more sustainable economy. I, I do worry that the way we're going of this um, consumerism and materialism is going to, you know, it's just not sustainable. We just don't have enough resources. I mean, there's some federal projects in the U.S. where they've had call for proposals where they're basically saying, how could we build this battery or whatever it is without this particular element on the periodic table? Because they are cognizant that we're basically running out of that element on the periodic table, there's fewer places to go mining. And, you know, maybe someday we're gonna have to go out to the asteroid belt and lasso an asteroid and bring it and, and mine that for its minerals uh, because we are depleting our planet. We're, we're like locusts on this planet and it's just not sustainable. So I would love to do things that kind of help alleviate that situation. 
It's funny you mentioned space mining. That's my Sunday dream of actually getting to do some mining in space. But that's about the time we have. Thank you so much for coming over here okay. today, Paul Berger. Thank you.